when I was sick with the flu. Since then, every single member of my family has been sick. Becca decided to do it twice. Uh, she is back with the flu. I went home from work on Friday. She had a 103 fever. Uh, she is mending finely. We're really hoping everybody's going to be healthy by tomorrow morning. Um, I have been, my job is in a place right now, um, just because of the convergence of like seven different threads where despite taking two weeks, two days off last week, I still worked 45 hours. Um, Sunday was nice, but other than that, I've basically been in vomit or sickness or a wife that has been incapacitated for two weeks. It was bad enough that the night I got five hours of sleep, I was in an elevator and one of my coworkers comments, you look different. Did you get a haircut? Um, so five hours of sleep was enough to make a difference in how I looked. Yeah, because Nathaniel has decided that 40 minutes is about as long as he wants to sleep right now, unless he's on top of someone. So Becca and I have been, we're, for about a week, we're working in four-hour shifts of just sitting up with him on me. And at one point, he decided if I had an iPhone or anything on, he would try and either wake back up or kick it. So I just sat there in the dark at 3 in the morning, thinking about joy. My point's not to talk about the challenge to my prep time, though this is the least prepared sermon I've ever preached. I was literally in the bathroom today trying to work my way through it because it was the only room where somebody wasn't lying around um, doing something. It's more that as I prepare a sermon, part of the preparation is kind of preaching it to yourself in advance of sitting here and thinking about joy in the midst of this. Um, so as I've been going through this, that refrain kept going through my head because the only verse I could remember for some reason through all this was, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Vomit rolling down my back, rejoice. Um, not sleeping, rejoice. And I mean, to be honest, it got a little annoying. Uh, having that be, it didn't come, it was not towards the midpoint of the stretch coming across as encouragement. Um, it was a challenge. I have probably been more angry than I have been rejoicing the past two weeks. And I want to talk back to the Bible in the midst of this and essentially say, like, you don't understand exactly how this works. So rejoice in the Lord always. It's like, it's a nice slogan. I can put on a bumper sticker, um, on a car, but I mean, if we're going to be serious about the direction this is going, Paul surely didn't mean that. Um, I want to tell him like, no, there's times for rejoicing. This is not one of them. There's times for mourning. But then I have to remember that this is Paul who is writing this from prison. Uh, not in chains, but actually, well, might have been in chains, but he, had, he at least had a desk or somebody to write, but he was literally under captivity while writing this. Um, this is a guy who describes himself in these terms. And this is chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes last one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day, I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, I feel you, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 
This is the guy who gets thrown in prison and sings hymns. So to some extent, you feel this, and this is, I mean, I find more challenge in verses like this than I do in creation from nothing and a guy walking on water in, yeah, sure, resurrection of the dead multiple times. That's fine. Rejoice always. We're straining credulity at that point. Um, <laughs> but it's not an isolated text, nor is this something where you have to just piece together Paul's story with this command. Like, if you get a broad enough picture of the Bible, you start to feel like when he says rejoice always, it's this guy over here who's doing this. No, he ties it together in one verse for us, in, or one section in Romans 5, to just hammer home his craziness. Through him, we have obtained, I'm sorry, starting, I'll start in verse 3 of chapter 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love is important to our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And it's not just Paul. This isn't something where if you take Paul out of the Bible, suddenly you just get rejoicing in happy things, which is really what I've been pushing for these past two weeks. Peter um, covers the same sort of idea. In this you rejoice, that is, in your salvation you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is another guy who was thrown in prison multiple times, and according to tradition, was martyred for his faith. We can leave the original 12 apostles and get to James, brother of Jesus. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it's not simply that they have this view that suffering is in this. So it's not just Paul, it's everybody. And it's not just this idea that we're supposed to endure suffering, which I could kind of get behind, like this stoic endurance of suffering and then be rejoicing. They actually want us to rejoice in our suffering, rejoice in the trials, because these trials bring about, a trans through them, God works a transformation in us. And it's not, I mean, Paul like just ups the ante on craziness in some of this, because it's not simply that Paul looks upon suffering as something to be rejoiced in because it's bringing about your own salvation, which you can kind of get behind from a self-interested sort of way. But he goes along in first, in Col first Colossians, which is true, I suppose. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is them, that is the church. So Paul doesn't only instruct us to rejoice in our sufferings, which you assume he's applying to himself as well, because it brings because through that, God's working a transformation in him. He also rejoices in his sufferings because through that, God is bringing about a transformation in other people. 
through Paul's suffering, he sees people being changed. So Paul rejoices in that suffering. <laughs> Again, sun standing still, cool. This is a little more challenging. Because it's not just... Uh, this is not just a stoic ignoring of pain. This isn't a happy, clappy, just pretending like it doesn't exist. Yes, we're rejoicing always, but the same guy who says that also, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So somehow in the midst of this, and this is what I've been trying to get together this whole, this whole week, is we have both a command to rejoice always and to weep. And it's not rejoice sometimes and weep, which is how I can make the pieces naturally fit together, but it's rejoice always and weep. So what we have is this image of an undercurrent of joy, of something that is so consistent that it can be said to always be happening despite being in moments of weeping, weeping. that we can be Rejoicing always, you can truly be rejoicing always despite going through something that is miserable in the moment of it. And that is what you're going through or what someone that you care about is going through when you come alongside of them. We have a fundamental reality of joy. And it is a joy... I think the image we have often of this world is that it's a dark world that joy pierces into. We have a vision of Christmas as something where the world is dark and then there's a light that shines into the middle of it. When what seems to be the story is this is a creation undergirded by a good God who made this world. And as such, what we have is not a dark world where light occasionally pierces into it, but we have this bright, glowing core of joy that misery and hardship and darkness and sin has kind of encrusted around and doesn't let out. And what we get it, we get cracks in that, and we see joy and we feel joy. And what we see at Christmas is God basically taking and piercing it, and joy starts to pour forth. And you see it's just the, this ball of blackness around the joy that is the fundamental reality of this world, of a world made by a good God, starts to crack. And in that, we have this ability to stare into the darkness. We have the ability to come beside those who weep. We don't need to downplay our own struggles. Being vomited on sucks. <laughs> Getting up three times in the middle of the night to go deal with a child that somehow creates a pool of vomit. Rose's stomach is like, it's like one of those magical rooms apparently where it's like, it's only this big in her body, but like somehow it expands this big. Like you open the door and it's like, how did this fit in here? I have no idea. Three times. That sucks. Yes. We don't need to come towards the hardships of this life or the pain that other people feel and react to those with a false smile. I mean, that's just throw false smiles out of here. We can come to a person in pain. We can address our own pain 
truly stepping into it. We can feel the pain. We can weep with those who weep. But in doing that, it never should replace that undercurrent of joy that we have in the midst of us. There's a passage, trying to figure out what this looks like, there's always a passage that has stuck with me. It's actually from the Lord of the Rings. Because it gives an image of what this looks like to me. I don't know what idea Tolkien had in mind when he wrote this, but it catches the image of this. This is Gandalf, and it's him and Pippin. It's from uh, Return of the King. Yeah, Return of the King. You did indeed, said Gandalf, laughing suddenly. And he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm about the hobbit's shoulders and gazing out of the window. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. This is, it's a good image of what is meant to be our reality. It's a good image of what the reality of this world is, that there is joy at all times looking to burst forth. That we can come because of that. And it's true of all these elements, of the peace, of the love, of the hope that we talk about at Christmas. These things are woven into the fundamental reality of who we are and of the structure and architecture of how this world is made. And when we come to sorrow, we can go as Christians and look basically straight into the abyss because that blackness will not overtake us because the light shines forth from us. We don't need to pretend like it's happy or it's good. We can face it for the darkness that it is. We can face the sin within ourselves and not lose hope. We can face sorrow and not lose joy because it's meant to be so deeply woven into who we are. So the question is, and this is what I want to pose, and this is a fairly short sermon, especially for me. Um, what we can learn about this joy in Advent as we look to Jesus' first coming, as we look to his second coming in the future, and as we consider how he dwells within us. When we look to his first coming, we see, because it's one thing to say this joy exists. The other thing is that it's really hard to feel on a moment-by-moment basis. And that's what I want to basically do, is look at these three things so that hopefully as you go home and your child pukes on you, you have these things to remember back, to think about, to encourage, or if your friend gets puked on, to encourage them through this. So that's what I want to consider as we look at the story of Jesus. So this first is his birth, and the closest we get joy to the actual birth of Jesus, the word joy. This is when the shepherds, uh, the angels, I keep trying to make the shepherds appear to the angels. The angels appear to the shepherds. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear, that is, the shepherds were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we see a few things there. 
we see that the occasion for this joy is the birth of someone. It's the birth of a Savior. It's the birth of a Lord. Christ has come. So we see a Savior and a Lord whose coming is good news. This is in accordance with the promises of God. He's in the, in the city of David. This ties it into the prophecy of where he would be born. And it's someone that is born unto you. That entire sentence makes sense with those two words, remove, unto you. You can say, and it's true, for this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Sorry, for, is bo- for born this day, sorry. I need to sleep at some point. But what gets added to that verse is it's unto them. To these shepherds who are sitting in a field, uh, angels, angels appear and say, unto you is born this Savior in accordance with the promises. We have a presence of God in the form of a baby come to dwell with his people. The one who is Lord and Savior, as Terry spoke of, who has been promised throughout the scriptures for millennia prior to this. That's also seen in uh, Mary's uh, Song of Praise, the Magnificat. This is a little bit before the birth. This is when she goes and visits her relative Elizabeth. And um, John the Baptist leaps in the womb when, she get, when she, he hears her voice. And she says, this is Mary, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Sorry, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Again, we see it. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, this is something that has been promised. This is not... The story of the Bible is not a lot of stuff was happening for a long time, and then over here... Out of left field, God appears to a young virgin, and the story just takes a complete turn unrelated to all of this. It wasn't like God just scrapped the first draft of the Old Testament and moved on with the New Testament, and for some reason we accidentally picked it up. No, this is in accordance with all of this. He has come and placed this child within Mary. He's come and you can see the things he does, the things she ascribes to God in that passage. That is the good that comes from the reign of this God, who is her Lord and her Savior. And she rejoices in this. The cause and occurrence of this rejoicing is this child that has come and been placed and is now growing in her womb. The child that will be born unto us. This presence of this person. And she rejoices and we We'll call her blessed. Now consider the life that Mary is going to live after this. The next, major, the next prophecy she's going to get is that her soul will be pierced by a sword for this child. 
She's going to be driven from her homeland into Egypt. She's going to come back at some point. She loses Joseph, and she now has all these kids by herself. Her firstborn, she comes to think, is possibly Messiah at first, possibly crazy. And then she sees him crucified. This is the woman who rejoices. This is the child that's been given to her. A child that will cause her to be driven from where she is. A child that she will watch with anguish as he works out his career. And then who she will ultimately see killed. And in this her spirit rejoices. And we will call her blessed. My notes, my notes make no sense. And it's not simply this first coming where we see this joy. Because as we know, I mean, Jesus does come. He is born. He comes and he lives as a man. He does die upon the cross, but he's raised. We do see his lordship. We see God's reign in the healings, in the way he speaks, in the driving out of demons. We see this. We see God's reign in the fact that he is murdered upon a cross, but he rises again. We see the presence of God as Jesus walks among his people. And then he's gone again. He's working out that reign right now. He does not, he do, Jesus doesn't, when he ascends, like decide to take a 2,000 year plus vacation from reigning. He's still working out that reign, but he will return as we look forward to his second coming. He will come and he will bring that reign to its fulfillment. He will have defeated all of his enemies, making death his footstool. And he will come and we will dwell in God's presence forever. So again, we see that, this Lord and Savior, this presence and it's in accordance with all the promises. We'll finally see all of the promises fulfilled because we're still seeing a lot of them being worked out. And that will bring joy. Je Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before he is put on the cross, and he tells them that they will mourn while he's gone. Like a woman whose hour has come and a child is being born, there's mourning. <laughs> it's not a joyous pains of birth. But when the child is born, there will be great joy. Now, he's speaking of they're going to mourn while he's in the tomb, but they will rejoice when he's raised from the dead. But that can, still, that can speak to some extent of where we live right now. Paul speaks of this age as being in a state of groaning, of childbirth. And again, it's this idea that we're in a state of struggle an occasional pain, but it's a pain that looks forward to a joy before it that will be birthed. So we remember, again, as we look to Advent, not simply that Jesus came, that we saw the presence of God breaking in, that we had him reign, but we will see him come again. And that reign will be established concretely and forever. Now, what's interesting, in the last two chapters of Revelation, when you have everything coming down, you got this cube city and the streets of gold and all the gemstones, joy doesn't get mentioned. 
I don't think it's because there's not joy there. You get things like wiping away of tears. So it's a joyous time, but it's not like, it doesn't say like, and then they were joyful. Because the expectation is that we're joyful now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We, don't, we are not waiting for that second advent. We're not waiting for the coming of Jesus, for finally all the pain to be wiped away, so at that point, we can rejoice. My reactions through most of this week were wrong. <laughs> we can rejoice now. There's a section in Luke 10 that's instructive in this in the way Jesus often is. This takes place after he has sent out the 72 to go minister. He's basically deputized them and they go out and they're like, they're, they come back just excited. Like the demons are listening to them. The good stuff that Jesus was doing, they're now doing. And Jesus says in a passage in the Bible, in verse 17, and the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They returned with joy. And Jesus, in a very Jesus-y way, says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And he turns it, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They come back with very circumstantial joy. And it's not insignificant. It's not wrong. Jesus affirms it. That's a good thing that happened. The fact that they're going out and demons are subject to them because they're subject to Jesus' authority. They are going out and doing good work. And this is true of everything that is good and true that we go out and do. It is good. And Jesus is not saying, yeah, that's great, guys. He's actually saying it is good. And it is stuff that is good to rejoice in. When he says, do not rejoice in this, this is Jesus doing the type of thing where he's saying, hate your mother and your brother and your sister. He's not saying you actually need to hate them, but he's trying to draw how sharp a distinction this is. It, the joy that they have in this truly good thing, the joy that we have in the things that we do and the good stuff that happens to us and the circumstantial good that we see as heaven breaks forth and as we are able to work it out in our lives and our families, it pales in comparison to the fact that our names are written in heaven. And that's the, the through line you see through these passages about suffering. The reason we can rejoice in our suffering is because it is tied to this, is tied to this salvation. We can rejoice in our suffering because our names are written in heaven. Because we have in our names written in heaven a concrete hope. We have an assurance of who we are. We have an assurance of who we will be. We have an assurance of an eternity that will never end, which makes even a lifetime of suffering on this earth but a blink. 
And it means that the things that are being worked out in this suffering, the fact that this salvation is being proven solid, the fact that we are seeing a sanctification come about in us through this, the fact that we see in our suffering the advancement of the salvation of other people, we can rejoice because this life we have is so temporary, but there is an eternal one that awaits us. And we can see people advancing towards that. It means if I have a terrible week and I have a child vomiting on me, but somehow I can show in that love for that child that God can use to remind them at some point, this is how I love you. That while you're vomiting on me, spiritually, I will still hold you, clean you up, and set you right. I can rejoice in that if Ezra at some point is getting that message. I can rejoice in the conversations I've had with a sick child. I can rejoice that Nathaniel feels a comfort of lying on top of me, that he feels secure, and I was able to make that good thing happen for him, and hopefully at some point being more secure in this family, God will use this stuff. We can rejoice in, I mean, hopefully this is helpful. <laughs> and I can rejoice even if what God did through me to allow it to happen, the suffering I occurred, if God can use it in some way to speak to you, I can rejoice in that suffering because it is something being used for you, your sanctification. Now, how do we know that our names are written in heaven? We have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. We've been given a down payment Ephesians speaks to this very clearly that we have basically the first fruits. We have somebody who dwells within us, kind of like a ticket that says, this is redeemable for the fullness of your salvation. Assuredly. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved is the way the Bible speaks of salvation. And it's not like <laughs> you have been saved. Now really get to work so you can be saved. God is at work in every single step of that. And the spirit dwelling within us says we have been saved. Your name is in the book of heaven so we can rejoice in the suffering we, that goes on because we know where we're going. So again, the spirit also sits within us, putting to death the sin in us, working out our sanctification. He is the one who is at work within us, transforming who we are to be more like Christ. He's the one who reminds us of all the things that Jesus taught, that works those promises into us so that we remember them. So again, we see the presence of God, the presence of Christ. It's the spirit of Christ that dwells within us, working out as our Lord and Savior in accordance with the promises of God. And in all that that entails, we can rejoice. So as we celebrate Jesus' birth, as we do it in two days, hopefully healthy, as we celebrate Jesus' birth, remember that that baby that was born stepped into this world. He stepped into the sorrows of this world. He loved and was hurt. He wept over Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. That his life caused pain for others. That his mother had to see her son crucified. 
His friends were in anguish over what had happened to him before they knew the good news, that they felt that pain of childbirth. He came to walk in this world, moving towards a degrading and painful death. And he did that for joy. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What he asks us to do, to rejoice in our suffering because it's bringing about our sanctification, to rejoice in our suffering because it's being worked out in other people, is simply what he has done at a much smaller scale. He came and did everything he did for the joy that was set before him. He took on flesh and all that that entails, leaving, well, metaphorically, the absence of that pain for our sake. And he did it for joy. It was not duty, it was joy. He kept his promises because he wanted to. And in that, as we remember that, as we remember and celebrate the birth of baby Jesus, as we remember that he's placed his spirit within us, and as we remember that he will come again, we can rejoice. I said it was a long two weeks, but this has been helpful in some, since the prep of preaching to myself, and I hope it's been helpful for you, because this life is filled with all sorts of turmoil and struggle but we should be a people defined by joy.